Hi, everyone. This is your host, Christy Hemingway, and today's episode is tough. We're talking about a topic that we all wish didn't even exist, school shootings. We're here to focus on prevention, and our sponsor today shares our vision of schools where kids don't fall through the cracks. Epic Ethics for Peaceful Schools is an ethics-based social-emotional learning curriculum tied to literacy development and adopted as the Daniels Fund Ethics Initiative Elementary School Program. Epic Ethics is aligned to CASEL standards and offers digitized lesson menus with live links to save teachers time. They believe in ethics today for a better tomorrow, and you can learn more about their resources at edcuration.com. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking. Our guest today, Dr. Peter Langman, is a psychologist and the author of three books on school shooters, including his latest, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. He has presented at FBI headquarters, the FBI National Academy at Quantico, and the National Counterterrorism Center, and has trained thousands of professionals in education, law enforcement, and mental health on preventing school shootings. Dr. Langman is a researcher with the National Threat Assessment Center of the United States Secret Service. His work has been cited in congressional testimony on Capitol Hill, and his recommendations on school safety were presented to President Obama by the CEO of the American Psychological Association. He maintains the world's largest website devoted to school shooters at schoolshooters.info, and he is a researcher and trainer with the DriftNet Securities. Of course, what I most wanted to know from Dr. Langman was why is this happening and how can we make it stop? But I also wondered what drew him into this extremely disturbing line of research. Well, it was really kind of forced upon me. I was working in a children's psychiatric hospital back in 1999. And just 10 days after the attack at Columbine High School, There was a 16-year-old boy admitted to our hospital because he was seen as a school shooting risk. He had a hit list. He was engaging in strange behavior, disturbing behavior. He wrote um, a threatening message about killing someone on his website. People saw the warning signs. Everyone, of course, was on high alert in the immediate aftermath of the Columbine attack. And they got him to our hospital. And I was the one assigned the case to evaluate him. And then not long after that, there was another potential school shooter admitted to the hospital. And then another one. And there was a pretty steady stream of potential killers coming through our doors. And I was evaluating, you know, one potential killer after another. And I thought I better study this because lives are at stake. And that began my research not just studying the the kids who were coming to the hospital, but also studying the cases of actual school shootings as they occurred across the nation. So 
when that happened and you started to get that kind of consistent trickle of, of potential school shooters, was that a new phenomenon? Like, had that been happening at all prior to Columbine or was Columbine the watershed moment? It may have been happening prior to that. Um, I had been at that hospital for maybe seven months or so, and I had not seen any such cases until that one. Of course, people in other places around the country may have been seeing potential school shooters, but that was the beginning of my experience with them. Okay. And then that is what then developed into several multiple books and kind of what has become your life work. Um, So just for our listeners, in 2009, you wrote the book, Why Kids Kill Inside the Mind of School Shooters. And it was named Outstanding Academic Title that year. Um, You followed that up in 2015 with School Shooters, Understanding High School, College and Adult Perpetrators. And then your most recent book just released this July, um, July 14th, is called Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike. And I'm wondering if that's the book that we've all been waiting for. We just want to know how to make this stop. Talk about how your this book goes beyond your, your previous books. What new or additional information is in this book that educators really need to, to be aware of? Well, to draw a distinction between the first two and the new one, being kind of simplistic about it, the first two were on understanding the perpetrators. The new one is on stopping them. Solely focused on the warning signs, the pre-attack behavior, what we need to do to stop these attacks, the reasons people often don't report the warning signs, even when they encounter them, the stereotypes we may be carrying in our minds about what a school shooter looks like, that then lead us to disregard warning signs when they come from someone who doesn't fit that stereotype, and so on. So the whole book is really devoted to being, you know, primary source of information on preventing school shootings which I think is what we would all love to learn. So I can't wait to hear more about all of the things that you just said. Um, So you have said in a couple places that most assumptions about perpetrators are wrong. Um, What are those wrong assumptions? Well, if you read the media accounts, you may see things like they're always white males and they're largely white males, but they're not always white males. Um, You may see a focus on these are victims of bullying who reach the breaking point and then seek retaliation against the perpetrators. And that's happened occasionally, but in the vast majority of school shootings, that's not what the perpetrators are doing. They're not going after anyone who picked on them. I think most people consider school shooters to be the misfits, the outcasts, the loners, and so on. And yes, there have been some who fall into those categories. But again, most are not really loners. Um, Most do have some level of friendships. Um, Some have been dating or have relationships and so on. And school shooters are not always uh, teenagers. School shooting is really a lifespan phenomenon. So I think it's a much broader phenomenon than people tend to realize. I think there's a lot more Uh, variation among the perpetrators than people tend to realize. 
And that's what I mean by some of the stereotypes we may have that may get in the way of taking a threat seriously if it comes from someone who's not alone or not an outcast and, and so on. Yeah. So we have this kind of profile in our mind that that may or may not be correct. So then help us understand, especially for listeners who are brand new to your work and haven't read maybe any of your blogs or your books before, you have been, your research has enabled you to kind of categorize and understand who these school shooters are and why they act. And you kind of categorize them into three types. And I was hoping that you could give just a very brief overview of those categories for our listeners. Sure. So to start with, there's no such thing as a profile of a school shooter. There's too much diversity. That doesn't mean that there are not any patterns or commonalities among them. And as you said, when I studied them, it struck me that they seem to be falling into three categories. The categories are not always absolutely distinct. Some perpetrators may have traits of two of the three categories. But understanding those categories, I think, is a step forward in making sense of who the perpetrators are and how they got to this point. So the first type is what I call the psychopathic school shooter. My uh, definition of a psychopathic school shooter, I look at several traits. One of these is extreme narcissism, thinking that they're above the rules, that uh, rules and laws don't apply to them, that they're special. They look down on other people. Um, They tend to be very callous because their world really revolves around them to an incredible degree. So if they hurt other people, there's no guilt, no remorse. And not only are they callous, but they may actually be sadistic and go out of their way to hurt people because they enjoy having the power that goes with hurting people. And eventually that can escalate. So to summarize, it's kind of that idea of a cold-blooded criminal, no empathy, they live for themselves, and they hurt and kill without guilt and may actually seek out that opportunity because there's a rush that goes with uh, that experience for them. That seems like a category that would maybe be the easiest to spot or have the most red flags. Like that's a kid that we're all concerned about. Um, What percentage of school shooters fall into that category? Well, it depends on what point in the lifespan you're talking about. My second book looks at 24 secondary school shooters and 24 adult school shooters. And among the secondary school shooters, 29% were psychopathic. So um, means most of them are not. But going back to your point about, it sounds like they'd be easy to spot. There's another feature that I did not mention about them. And that's that they're very good at what's called impression management. They know how to make a good impression often when they want to. They're like a con artist, so they can charm people in class. They may present very well and be good students and raise their hand and seem like great kids. All the while, in the privacy of their journals, they may be writing their detailed fantasies of sadistic violence or planning attacks. So that ability to con or charm people can make it much more difficult than you would think to identify these kids. Got it. Okay. So the first category is the psychopathic category. So talk about the other two. 
Okay, the second category is what I call the psychotic school shooter. And psychosis is generally defined as meaning out of touch with reality. And that tends to take one of two forms. That could be hallucinations, having sensory experiences which are not real. Most commonly, that means they hear voices talking to them when there's no one there. Another type of psychotic symptom is what's called delusions, which is, you know, rigidly held false beliefs. Most commonly, those are paranoid delusions, thinking they're the victim of some conspiracy or plot, people or someone, something is out to harm them. But you also see uh, delusions of grandeur as well. People may think they're some exalted leader or they're a specific person from history or just someone special, someone with godlike power. So the delusions may be of multiple types. So when you're talking about psychotic symptoms, this is where the issue of mental illness becomes most relevant. Um, many of these shooters have schizophrenia or another diagnosis that includes psychotic symptoms. Okay, so those, those are the first two. And then there's a third category, right? Right. The first two categories, those perpetrators typically come from essentially stable, more or less intact families. So, I mean, there may be a divorce or a separation in the families, but no major dysfunction. When you get to the third category, the traumatized shooters, these are the kids from severely dysfunctional, chronically violent homes. So in each case, at least one, if not both parents, are alcoholic or drug addicted. At least one, if not both parents, have a criminal history, sometimes to the point of incarceration. They're victims of physical abuse. They witness domestic violence. They may be victims of sexual abuse, either in the home, in the community, or in a foster home that they end up in because their family is too dysfunctional to maintain them. So they get taken from the home and may go through a series of foster placements. So these are kids with a history of repeated traumas. Is it kind of evenly divided between these three categories? And some of them overlap, right? So a traumatized shooter could also be psychotic, right? Yes. I haven't seen anyone with traits of all three, but I have seen multiple perpetrators that have uh, traits of two. Again, just using that sample from my second book of the 24 secondary school shooters, 42% were traumatized and then 29% were psychotic and 29% psychopathic. So among the younger shooters and juveniles in that sample, the traumatized shooters were the most common. So the balance of the three types changes. When you look at the adult perpetrators, over 90% in that sample had psychotic symptoms, as opposed to 29% in the juvenile sample. And that, again, makes sense because the average age of onset of schizophrenia in males is late teens or early 20s. So when you see perpetrators in their 20s and above, it's not surprising that more are psychotic. You know, schizophrenia or that level of severity in mental illness is much less common when you're talking early, mid-teens. How many of these kiddos really, because that's what they are. How many of them had been 
officially diagnosed or even flagged in any way prior to perpetrating? You know, I don't have data on that. That's not necessarily information that is made public. Okay. Um, But it's not unusual that someone had either been flagged um, as some kind of concern, not necessarily concern for mass violence, but they'd come to someone's attention either because of some kind of misconduct in school or the community okay. or some kind of, you know, psychological issue. So not all these kids are falling through the cracks in the system. Some of them are getting supports, but either the supports are not adequate or the kids are so determined to carry out their attacks that they're just lying their way through, like I said. Well, so is it easier to see the flags in retrospect? Like when, in your research, you study their backgrounds pretty extensively. Is it easier to see looking in retrospect that, oh, that thing should have tipped us off? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do in my new book, among other things, is highlight the kinds of things that were missed you know, having now the benefit of hindsight to look back and see all the warning signs that there were, some of which people saw but didn't take seriously or didn't know how to respond to, um, and identify all these pre-attack behaviors, pre-attack in- indications that someone was on the path of violence. So what are some of those? Some of them are remarkably obvious And that's maybe the problem that when kids say, I'm going to bring a gun to school and shoot people, no one takes that seriously, especially if it's a younger kid. And some of these perpetrators have been 11, 12, 13 years old, you know, 14, 15. Um, They may seem like good kids. They may be really small, um, haven't even hit puberty yet. It's hard to take those kinds of comments seriously, especially if it's your friend and you've known them all your life. So sometimes I think the challenge is the warning signs are so obvious that people dismiss them. And they may think that someone who's planning a mass attack is not going to announce it. Yeah. We, we tend to think that crime is something people want to get away with. So if you're really going to do it, you're not going to spread the word about it. However, when it comes to school shootings, kids typically do spread the word either online or social media with their best friend, or sometimes just openly with lots of peers at school. So they typically do talk about it. Yes, especially the younger ones. Um, When you get to the adult perpetrators, some of them are better at keeping their plans hidden. But when you're talking about juvenile shooters, there's a lot of what's called leakage. They leak their intentions. Okay. So as I said, one challenge is it's often so obvious no one bothers with it. Mm-hmm. Another challenge is if it's not so obvious, you might need to read between the lines and people don't do that. They haven't been trained to do that. So maybe for those educators who haven't had a chance to read your book yet, because it just came out, um, what would be maybe your top three tips for identifying those potential problems or perpetrators? Well, certainly any direct announcement that they're going to commit an attack you have to follow up on any even indirect announcement. Like they may tell their friends, you know, don't be in school tomorrow. Something bad's going to happen. Well, that's an announcement. It's not as explicit as I'm coming in tomorrow with a gun, but kids need to report those things. And then the staff has to 
take those kinds of things very seriously. Sometimes kids hand in homework assignments that in hindsight were foreshadowing what they did. So I have a whole chapter in the book called Warning Signs and Homework Assignments. Some of these pieces of homework have been very strange, very disturbing, even if they're not directly announcing a planned attack. So the warning signs could show up in conversation with peers, in homework assignments, on social media. People just need to be aware that there's typically a trail, and if something gets reported, the school needs to investigate it. And that means more than just talking to the student in question, because one, kids lie. Psychopathic perpetrators are extremely good at lying. <laughs> lie well, right? They don't just lie. They lie really well. Right. And they, they can be, as I said, charming and maybe, you know, teacher's favorite kid in the class. So you have to talk to the peers, look on the social media. You have to do more of an investigation than just have a conversation with the student in question. It's, it's tricky, right? Because adolescents by nature can be pretty narcissistic and they can be a little bit obsessed with dark things and violence. Um, so where is the line or is there a line? Should we just erase the line and pursue every, every red flag? Well, there, well, there's no clear line between ordinary teenage interests and something that's a warning sign. It's a fuzzy line. You know, anytime a student writes a homework assignment that has any uh, gunfire in it is not a warning sign. Any indication that they're planning an attack, however, has to be taken as a, a warning sign. Mm-hmm. And I talk about in, in the book a couple concepts. One is attack-related behavior, which is any indication that they're taking steps towards making an attack happen. It's not just a fantasy. So if kids who are engaging in some of this talk have also been buying guns illegally or practicing building bombs or accumulating other types of weapons, that's attack-related behavior. That is an absolute uh, indication that someone's on a dangerous path. So if there's evidence of planning that someone's chosen the specific day or they're studying um, the school surveillance system and trying to figure out a way to smuggle a gun into school, um, anything related to making that fantasy a reality has to be taken very seriously and responded to immediately. Okay. So I'm, I'm wondering, Dr. Langman, if there has been an outlier in your research, if there's that student that you're still just baffled by that didn't fit the categories or that you're still just wondering what was going on there. Yes. Really? Okay. There's plenty of shooters that we just don't have much information on. Mm -hmm. And you can't do an analysis in the absence of data. So some of the cases are still, you know, just mysteries to me. Mm -hmm. Are there any of the students who, who you do have a lot of information on and they're still an outlier? You're, you're still not seeing how their path led them to that kind of violence. All right. Um, October 24th, 2014, Jalen Freiberg, 15-year-old boy, texted his best friends to meet him uh, at, uh, at lunch at the school cafeteria. And they're all eating their lunch at a round table. And partway into lunch, he pulled out a gun and point blank range 
shot his best friend. That's a very difficult case to make sense of. He did not shoot apparent enemies. He shot the kids he seemed to be closest to. One of them was even a cousin of his. It's just a difficult case to understand. And did he take his life? Yes, he did. So, yeah, so we can't, we'll never know. And there's none of the indications of him falling into any of your three categories in in his background. There's hints of issues with his uh, father in particular. So we could hypothesize a possible history of trauma, but none of that has ever been documented. We all wish for a world where we're not afraid to send our kids off to school, and stories like this become a fabled history. Today's sponsor is working toward that goal, helping every student to be seen and heard and to find connection so that warning signs are caught and heeded. This is Ron Green, Curriculum Designer and Director of Epic Ethics for Peaceful Schools. It is our honor to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At Epic Ethics, we believe healthy learning environments include space for the authentic voice of all students. Epic Ethics classrooms demonstrate daily engagement in ethical decision-making from all participants. Students and teachers alike foster positive relationships using the ethical framework of the four awesome questions. Is it true? Is it fair? Will it build better friendships and community? Will it be helpful to those involved? The Epic Ethics curriculum can be used as a standalone social and emotional program or as enrichment to existing SEL material. Nonlinear digital instructional designs allow teachers to differentiate easily, mixing and matching activities that are relevant to the student population and reinforce literacy development. Ethics today for a better tomorrow. I need to ask you about gender because these students are predominantly male. Do you have theories and explanations about that beyond just testosterone makes us crazy? I mean, what, what is that about? Well, most violent offenders are male. It's not just a school shooting right. phenomenon. Um, multiple researchers have looked at this. Um, it's been called the failure of manhood. I talk about it in terms of damaged masculinity. So that's something I have written about. Um, a lot of shooters seem to have a desperate, profound insecurity and sense of themselves as nobody, as a nothing, a zero, as a failure, as a male. And some of them have written very clearly that getting guns and having the power to hurt and kill enhances their sense of self. It's, it's a status building experience. Simply having their hands on the gun makes them feel more masculine having the power to kill elevates them even higher. And that's something that's exclusively part of the male psyche that really doesn't exist for, for females. I have not seen that in the female offenders that I've studied. And that second book of mine that looks at 48 perpetrators does contain profiles on four girls or women who committed school shootings. They may fall into the categories of psychopathic, psychotic, or traumatized, but they don't seem to have that kind of issue or relationship with um, power. 
do you credit the societal role models around here's what we see in our movies. It's, it's men, you know, chasing each other with guns and we're start. it's starting to be more of a female role model that we're seeing as well as, as movies and TV shows have more and more um, female protagonists who, you know, who engage in that kind of violence is how much of a role does that play? It's probably contributing something, but of course, most people watch those movies and don't go out and kill anybody. So, of course, yeah. it's not a cause. It may be one more factor. A contributing factor. Okay. Yeah. There's a sociologist named Dr. Catherine Newman, and uh, she's written about that, what she calls cultural scripts. And the 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 theme in so many movies or other uh, sources that violence enhances male status, whether it's a a good guy or a bad guy, violence enhances their status. And that's something that kids grow up uh, absorbing. The quote unquote failure of manhood or damaged masculinity that Dr. Langman referred to and the direct correlation to weapons and violent behavior has been written about prolifically, in addition to school shootings and mass shootings in general being almost exclusively male-perpetrated. They are also predominantly an American phenomena. Although this is slightly out of the scope of his research, I was interested in Dr. Langman's theories on why this is so. School shootings do occur in, in multiple other countries. No other country seems to have the number of incidents that we have. The two countries that seem to come closest are Canada and Germany. Wait, um, Canada? Did you just say Canada? Yes. I'm shook. Canada's had several school shootings, including several large-scale ones. Um, wow. One with 20 victims, one with, I think, 28 victims. Um, Germany's had at least two shootings that had more fatalities in Columbine. Wow. Um, my, my second book, again, the one with uh, 48 cases, includes incidents from Canada, Germany, Finland, um, Brazil, and my website has perpetrators from other countries as well. Is it bad that this somehow comforts me? I guess because it indicates that we're not completely crazed, violence-obsessed anomalies here in America. But it's also devastating because it means that it's happening everywhere. And I can no longer turn to my husband every time it happens and say, honey, we're moving to Canada. So it does happen in other countries. And interestingly, as far as the information is available, the perpetrators in other countries seem very much like the perpetrators in the United States in terms of being psychopathic, psychotic, etc., Um, or the damaged masculinity, the same kinds of themes come up um, with them as I see in the American perpetrators. It's just happening here with a greater regularity. Yes. Like exponentially so, right? Yes. Now you have to keep in mind the population of America is many times that of some of these other countries. Okay. But it does seem to occur more here. And you also get a cross-fertilization where shooters in other countries know all about the Columbine perpetrators and 
you know, imitate them, study them. And occasionally you have shooters in this country who also have studied perpetrators in other countries as well. In rare occasions, there's even been some communication online among people who went on to become perpetrators. Oh, wow. Okay. So, So the internet's adding a whole other component to this issue of influence um, from one perpetrator to another. So what is your theory about why America seems to be the hotspot? No, no one really has a good answer. But what you can say is that school shooters across the globe tend to follow the same patterns, have the same characteristics. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. Okay. So... In thinking about, (laughs) all of us are getting ready to return to school, and in recent years, there has been an increased focus on school safety and a lot of debate about what to do about school safety. And that is being combined with a big focus on changing school climate to be a more welcoming and a nurturing environment for learning and a much bigger emphasis on social and emotional learning. And sometimes those two things are in contrast because, (laughs) you know, things like having to pass through a metal detector or have school officers, school safety officers on hand and having to go through regular shooter drills and things like that, while they're designed to keep kids safe, do not have the effect of making kids feel safe. They have the opposite effect. They make us feel like we're in an unsafe place. Otherwise, why would we need to be doing shooter drills? And so how do we balance those things of we need to have these things to keep kids safe, but they're, they don't make us feel safe? What can we do about that? You know, how you do those drills makes a big difference. And they can be done as simple drills. They can be done as essentially um, acting out a, an active shooter situation with um, the sounds of gunfire and so on. Depending how you do it, it can be kind of routine or it can be very traumatic. Not just for the kids, but sometimes for the staff too. It's very traumatic. I had to do shooter drills with my students. I'm mm-hmm. hiding in a closet, a dark closet with all my students gathered around me, scared, even though we're just pretending. Right. So how they're done makes a big difference. Are they done in an age appropriate way? How you do it for five-year-olds should be different than how you do it for you know high school kids and so on. But I just want to make one point here about um, whether it's lockdown, active shooter drills, emergency response training, and so on. All of that are all of those things are things that you do in response to a gunman already being in the building. Yeah. But these, these are not preventive actions, and they're important actions that might save lives, but they're all reactive. And for whatever reason, as a country, we focused on these reactive measures, you know, for the last 20 or so years, practicing lockdown and, and so on. And of course, there's a place for that, but that's not prevention. And I think where we're lagging behind is being proactive, teaching people the warning signs, having schools with a trained threat assessment team who can investigate those warning signs that are brought to their attention and knowing how to intervene effectively. And I think teaching students, these are warning signs. This is what you do when you encounter them. Having 
an anonymous tip line, whether through the school district or many states now have a statewide anonymous tip line, you know, making it easy for students to come forward, having school staff trained in how to investigate potential threats. That is something that we as a nation need to be doing a whole lot more of to balance out the reactive and the, the proactive pieces. And you're working on a national level to do that. You've worked with the FBI, you've trained with Homeland Security to train professionals on school safety. So what can the average educator, who is mostly who our audience is, learn from those kinds of high-level trainings that can be implemented at their level? Ideally, there's a, a team of people in each school who are trained to investigate threats. And there's various methodologies on how you do it, um, but the important thing is that you have a system in place and then everyone in the school, including staff and students, needs to have some basic introduction to warning signs and what you do so that the right things do get reported to the threat assessment team. So that's what schools need to do at the individual level. While Dr. Langman's new book is not a guide for how to set up a threat assessment team, there are resources to help with that. His book will help with awareness and identification of warning signs, both for staff and students. I have examples in the book of attacks that were stopped by parents and a grandparent, one that was stopped by a woman, an 18-year-old, actually in a, a drugstore who was processing some photos for development, saw guns and bombs and called the police and they intervened. Another attack was stopped by someone in a McDonald's parking lot who found a, a notebook lying on the ground, looked inside, saw plans for a mass attack, turned it into the police, you know, a massacre was prevented. So my book is really for not just educators or law enforcement or mental health professionals, but parents and grandparents and even, you know, high school, college students themselves to really be informed and know what to look for and what to do when you see it. Talk to the average teacher who's listening right now about what to do for, for those moments when they're feeling concerned about their, a student in their class. What is their first step for figuring out what's going on with that kid? Well, as I say in my book, it's not a burden that any teacher should carry on his mm -hmm. or her shoulders alone. You know, teachers are part of a, a team. I think sometimes they may be reluctant to take any formal action. It may just be a straight comment in class or one assignment. They may not want to overreact to it. It may be helpful just to talk it through with a colleague. Maybe a couple of their colleagues had similar reactions and haven't spoken up yet for the same reason. So it's so important to communicate. Communicate with your colleagues because different people may have a different piece of the puzzle. It could be a comment made in this class, um, an assignment in a different class. Maybe someone saw something on the kid's social media and mentioned it to someone at school. You can't do an assessment without the information. So it's really all about doing this as a team, not trying to figure it out on your own. And not remaining silent. Absolutely. No matter how small your concern might seem. Right. Um, it's so easy to come up with a reason not to take action. Again, I have a whole chapter on that in my book, the things that keep people from speaking up. It's easy to find reasons 
not to take action. Your research spans several decades. And I'm curious if you have seen us moving in the right direction. There is an, an increased focus on threat assessment, on being proactive. And is that having an impact? It's certainly moving in the right direction. Okay. So you all, in addition to your book, you're writing and you speak um, widely. You also offer trainings for professionals in education, in law enforcement, in mental health. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about those training opportunities? Well, in my trainings, I tend to cover two domains. One is the perpetrators, psychological dynamics, family histories, what puts them on the path of violence, and so on. And then the other half is the warning signs, the threat assessments, all the lessons learned from the attacks that we didn't stop, the benefits of hindsight, what can we see now that people did not see at the time, some basic do's and don'ts for threat assessment, and so on. So I tried to cover both uh, those domains. It was a true privilege to speak with Dr. Langman and to have a slice of his very valuable time. And we at Ed Curation are so grateful for the good work he's doing in the world, even though we wish that his work wasn't necessary and that the content of his research had never happened. But it has, and it continues to happen. And his new book is an essential resource for every educator working to make our schools safer places. You'll find warning signs identifying school shooters before they strike, as well as his other books, his blog, Keeping Kids Safe, and his website, where you can contact him about school and district-wide trainings, in the episode notes. And in thinking about being proactive with our students' mental and emotional health, I want to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by Epic Ethics for Peaceful Schools. Rudiana Garza, an elementary teacher from Aurora Public Schools in Colorado, said, I love the quality, culturally rich texts and activities in Epic Ethics that help students develop social-emotional awareness alongside vocabulary and literacy skills. I appreciate the time-saving curriculum designed by experienced educators. It is flexible and utilizes best practices to meet the needs of my diverse learners. You can reach out to Epic Ethics to learn more at edcuration.com. And while you're there, be sure to register for our fall webinar series to learn about important topics from national experts and to discover some groundbreaking instructional resources. If you found this episode helpful, please leave us a comment, like, and share. We hope you'll join us again next week to reshape learning on the Ed Curation Podcast.